greatest archaeological discovery in the history of the world. But what if those archaeologists missed something? What if they were so impressed and overwhelmed by the splendor of what they had discovered that they failed to miss an even bigger treasure? That's what we're going to be talking about today on Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. Now, most people are probably familiar to a greater or lesser extent with the tomb of King Tut or Tutankhamun. It's the famous golden mask you always see and that always immediately comes to mind when we think about ancient Egypt. It embodies the splendor and the wealth of that ancient land. But recently, some Egyptologists have questions as to whether King Tut is all that was in that tomb. Most notably, an Egyptologist named Nicholas Reeves has advanced a theory that that tomb actually hides another burial, a burial of what may possibly even be a more famous and more important pharaoh, that of Nefertiti, the famous queen immortalized by the bust now in the Neues Museum in Berlin, whose beautiful visage has already for more than a century impressed and entranced visitors in that city as well as from all over the modern world, who see that image as one of the quintessential pieces and really high points of art in the ancient world. But I'm getting a bit of my head of myself now. So let's go back for a second and talk about the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Now to talk about King Tutankhamun, why he was important and why his tomb is handed down to us today in a relatively intact fashion, we need to go back a little bit and talk about the context and the world into which King Tut was born. Now, King Tut was the son, by all indications, of the pharaoh Akhenaten. Akhenaten, who was also known as Amenhotep IV, was a pharaoh who was born really at one of the high points of Egyptian wealth and empire. Akhenaten was actually not intended to be the king of ancient Egypt. He was, in fact, a younger son, but after his older brother, Tutmosis, died, the throne and the regency fell eventually to Akhenaten. Now, Akhenaten's father was Amenhotep III, And Amenhotep III was probably one of, if not the most, important and powerful and wealthy pharaohs through all of ancient Egyptian history. He ran a vast empire and was extremely wealthy. But already under his reign, there appears to have been a a tension developing between Amenhotep III and and the priesthood of... Amun. Now, there's no need to go into too much detail of this because really what I want to talk about today is Nefertiti and King Tut and the possible tomb that they may share together, but it is important to have a a little bit of background. So let's just summarize and say that we're dealing with Akhenaten, a pharaoh who was born in one of the wealthiest and most secure and stable times in Egyptian history. However, far from being content with this, he goes on a radical building plan. 
initially early in his reign, apparently after his father dies, there's a bit of a debate about whether there was a co-regency, if so, how long it lasted. Again, we don't want to get bogged down in that minutia. Once he's ruling on his own, he appears to embark on a building campaign. And he's doing these buildings and creating some some religious structures within the region of Thebes, so in modern-day Luxor. But very quickly, it appears that he abandons that site and decides that he's going to found an entirely new city. That city is going to become known as Akit Aten, or the place which is effective for the Aten. And part of this founding of a new city is also the dissolution of the old religious structure. Now, the king in ancient Egypt could do this because Akhenaten was default, not only the commander-in-chief, head of the military, he was also the high priest. So he was the one who was really thought of as the individual who had that direct connection to the gods, who acted on their behalf and who could, in this case, interpret their wishes. And that's really how he paints himself and really how he tries to justify his role in the new religion. He shows himself as a prophet. He shows himself as an individual who had a direct connection to the God. So, on day 13, month 8, in the fifth year of his reign, he goes to his new city of Akhenaten. He's changed his name at this point for not too long, maybe a month or a couple of months, but he's changed his name from Amenhotep IV, falling right in line with his father, to this new name of Akhenaten, one who is effective for the Aten. And that break right there shows just how radical this change is. He's gone from his name of Amun is satisfied to one who is effective for the Aten. Now, the Aten is just a sun disk. And really, this is a kind of abstraction. He's going away from the traditional religion that has to do with stories and rich iconography. And he really paints himself as the prophet for this distant, remote sun disk that goes and lords over the entire land. So we've gone from a period of relative stability within Egypt and great wealth and power to a period where we have some major religious change. Now, it doesn't appear that there was any sort of revolution or really much of a competition or any sort of rebellion against what the king was doing. It seems that his nobles moved with him, and one of those, of course, was the queen Nefertiti, Akhenaten's main wife, and the figure we're largely going to be talking about today. Now, Nefertiti in a move that really breaks with traditional artistic depiction in ancient Egypt, is prominently displayed all over the monuments of Akhenaten, as are some of their daughters. Interestingly enough, his son, Tutankhamun, is not depicted. And there's some speculation that that might be because Tutankhamun is actually the son of a minor wife, not Nefertiti. It's not exactly clear, but either way, Nefertiti is given a very, very prominent role a role that's more prominent than the role held by most queens within ancient Egyptian history and within ancient Egyptian iconography. So the two of them move together. They're in this new city. They appear very prominently 
within the art as addressing this sun disk, the Aten, and also as being worshipped by the, well, probably not good to say common individuals, but within the nobles who have their tombs in this region of Akhenaten, we see images of the royal family, and especially Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti being worshipped by those individuals. Now flash forward about 12 years, because Akhenaten dies after only ruling about 17 years. He's not a long-lived king, so he's died. And now we have a little bit of confusion in the, in the archaeological record. We have what appear to be two rulers. One, a ruler named Smenkare. The other, a ruler named Nefru-Nefru-Aten. These two rulers both appear and appear to only have ruled for about two years. There used to be a lot of debate, and probably still is a significant amount, as to who exactly these two rulers were. Were they the same person? Were they different people? Most would, I think, now say that these were two distinct and different rulers that we're dealing with, but each appears to only have ruled for a couple years. It's widely thought that Nefru-Nefru-Aten may have actually been Queen Nefertiti. For many years, it was thought that Nefertiti either died or there had been some sort of falling out with Akhenaten because she disappears within, you know, about the middle point. But some inscriptions actually point to the fact that she was still alive very late in his reign. And many have taken this to be that perhaps Nefru-Nefru-Aten is a throne name that was taken on by Nefertiti after Akhenaten dies, and that she then rules on her own for a few years. Regardless of who this female ruler might have been, it appears that they didn't rule very long. And they are then succeeded by Smenkare. Now, some have argued that Smenkare actually is Nefertiti, and that even though it's a masculine name, we do sometimes see that perhaps in an effort for legitimacy, here a queen is taking on more masculine features. And even though that wasn't done directly with a name, it certainly was done with the image of an earlier queen named Hatshepsut in this same dynasty. So here we have a succession kind of going a little bit of turmoil. We have a, a dead pharaoh. We have another pharaoh succeeding two years, three years later, they're dying, another pharaoh succeeding. And this pharaoh, Smenkhare, really only lasts for a few years as well. And then they're succeeded by the famous King Tutankhamun. Now, King Tutankhamun himself doesn't rule that long. And this actually creates part of the problem and part of the very interesting issue that we're going to look at with his tomb. He seems to have ruled for around nine years or so, from about 1332 to about 1323 before the Common Era. So King Tut, who's ruling during this time, is really just a boy. He, he's, in fact, he's going to die at around 18. So we're, doc, we're talking about an adolescent who's taking the throne at nine, nine or so years old, ruling for around nine years, and then dying very young. And this creates the problem, and this creates the very interesting issue with his tomb. 
Traditionally, Egyptian kings had decades to build their tombs. They had a large amount of time to build expansive tombs. And of course, this is where right the great pyramids come from. These are kings who spent decades building monumental funerary structures funerary structures that were designed to help them continue living in the afterlife. These are really huge machines designed to provide them with everything they need in the afterlife. Because it's thought that the afterlife is much like this life. So you need food, you need clothing, and you also need specialized religious knowledge to be able to succeed in the afterlife. That's why we have, especially in the New Kingdom, but throughout really most periods, going from the end of the Old Kingdom forward, spells that occur on the walls of tombs, or famous papyri like the Book of the Dead, that are supposed to be almost like a passport that gives the deceased the the knowledge that they need to be able to successfully navigate the netherworld. So King Tut dies at around 18. Now, King Tut, fairly early into his reign, also moves the capital away from Akhenaten. So that city was abandoned, pretty much, and it seems to really have been abandoned fairly quickly, only lasted a generation or two. He goes back to Thebes, the traditional capital where the Amun priesthood was, and actually he changes his name. Part of that traditional, you know, name, we know him as Tutankhamun, which means, you know, the living image of the Aten. Well, his original name was actually Tutankhaten. So he originally was named for the Aten, but in a, the reverse of what his father did, he goes from having an Aten name switching to a name that shows his allegiance or his deference to Amun. Now, the tomb of King Tut, which is also known as KV-62 or King's Valley 62, is actually relatively small. It consists of a small set of stairs leading down to a sloping corridor. It opens onto an antechamber, which has a single small storage room off to the side. Then at a slightly lower level, there's a burial chamber for the king, which is also connected to another small storage chamber. So these were the chambers that when Howard Carter discovered the tomb in 1922, he looked inside and famously said, you know, I see wondrous things. There were completely stocked with clothing, with multiple shrines, with statuary, with incense, with food. Many of these items, again, which it was thought the king would need to survive. Now, when we talk about the burial of Tutton, we see it as a virtually undisturbed tomb. One of the things we have to remember about this burial is that it's completely uncommon. So just in terms of size, if we're talking about some of the other more powerful pharaohs in the New Kingdom, we might think of a pharaoh like Ramses II. And Ramses II, his tomb contained over 13 different rooms and chambers. So we've got 13 different rooms and chambers, including pillared halls, whereas with King Tut, again, we're dealing with an antechamber, a burial room, and two storage rooms. Even Ramses II's queen, Nefertari, had a tomb in the Valley of the Queens that contained seven rooms. And if we get a little bit closer in time, we see that the tomb of Amenhotep III, that powerful pharaoh I mentioned earlier, who just happens to be King Tut's grandfather, he had nine different chambers, multiple corridors, and a large pillared hall in his tomb. 
So King Tut's tomb we know is not only small, but that the burial that's going on within it is uncommon. And it's often been speculated and kind of accepted by Egyptologists that because he died young, a tomb hadn't been prepared, so this was rushed. And what that meant was they looked around and they found a tomb that had either been built for somebody who was of lesser stature or simply a smaller tomb that was already existing, and then they took that tomb over. They made some changes to the decorations and that this was now going to be where King Tut could be buried. And this actually forms the foundation of the central issue for today's podcast. Whose tomb was that? Or did it even belong to somebody else? Now, according to a recent article by an Egyptologist named Nicholas Reeves, there is in fact evidence, and not just evidence, but missing chambers from this tomb that we haven't yet discovered. Analyzing some high-resolution photography of these chambers, he believes he's identified two separate rooms which were heretofore unknown by Egyptologists. So he's analyzing the paint scheme. He's looking at the use of pigments. He's looking at the plaster. And he believes that associated with the burial chamber where Tut is, there's actually a hidden burial behind that. That we also, in addition to that, have a hidden storage room. So his belief is that we had a previous tomb that was buried for someone. So somebody here was buried, we don't know who, but when the king took over this tomb after his death, what they did was they put up basically a false wall, a plaster wall, um, sealing it off, an earlier burial chamber and an earlier storage chamber. And going through the evidence, Reeves believes that he's identified who this individual would have been. Looking at what we see within the tomb and within the period, he believes that this actually is the tomb of Nefertiti. And he's got a couple compelling pieces of evidences that he kind of points to with this. One thing he looks at is the layout of the tomb itself, that it's an L-shaped tomb that has a right turn. And he points out that such a burial scheme was really only used for queens and not kings. So he points to the fact that this tomb looks like it might have been built for a queen. He also points to the fact that when you analyze the burial equipment for King Tut, he's identified that that over 80% of the artifacts found within this tomb have actually been reused, are reused for King Tut, but originally belonged to other individuals and roughly contemporaneous individuals. So here we see a tomb that was possibly built for a woman, We see a tomb where the objects inside, much of which appear to have been co-opted from other individuals, especially royal individuals or those with royal associations, were usurped for King Tut. And again, out of this need because of his premature death. So now we have this kind of great mystery. What could actually be in there? Because if it is the tomb of Nefertiti, and they didn't disturb her burial. We would expect that here's somebody who's been ruling at this point for about two decades, somebody who would have had much more wealth and much more time to devote 
to their own burial. So if they left her goods intact, we would in fact actually, I expect to see wealthier and much more impressive material in that burial than we would see for the burial of King Tut himself. Now, this is where, you know, I have to be a a little bit more skeptical. So I've kind of, you know, in a bare bones way laid out Reeves' argument. And there's some other nuances to it that I'm not including, but I think I'm hitting the major points. What they've been doing the past really two months to kind of test this is, is actually doing some radar testing within the king of Tutankhamun. And part of why I'm timing this podcast the way I am is because they're supposed to release the information that they've gotten from that study with, you know, coinciding to the date of the anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. So we're actually going to be looking at this early November. We're going to get the results from those scans. Now, I would like nothing more than for them to actually identify chambers behind King Tut's burial chamber because there would be nothing that we could see that would actually be greater for Egypt or for tourism or just to bring interest to to ancient Egypt than an undiscovered tomb. And there very may well be some rooms associated with this that aren't actually discovered. So for instance, looking at some of the images of the plaster, it looks like there may actually be kind of some door outlines and it very well could be possible that we have something in there. However, I have to say I'm very skeptical that it would actually be the tomb of Nefertiti for a couple reasons. First off, as I said, we deal with this succession issue where you know, some people, and I believe Nick Reeves is one, who he actually thinks that Smenkare is Nefertiti. Whether or not Smenkare is Nefertiti or if she's Nefru Nefruaten, even if we put her in those couple years before, she would have died at Amarna. She would have died at Akit, the city of Akhetaten. And there was a royal tomb there that was built for royals. It's in a bad shape today. It's been flooded and much of the the plaster is kind of unfortunately peeling off. But we would have expected her to have been built and to have been located in that tomb. We also have some mummies in another tomb, KV-55, that appear to be royal mummies and those associated with royals that were taken from Akhetaten when they moved back to Thebes. So they, they appear to have taken their dead with them. Now that tomb is not in great shape. It's not lavish. It's thought to contain the, the mummy of, of King Akhenaten. I, I would personally have some issues with that, but let's say it did. Certainly some of the issue, individuals in that tomb are associated with royals. Now, looking at those individuals, why is it that Queen Nefertiti would have had her own tomb? She wouldn't have had the time to build it. She probably wouldn't have been inclined toward building it if she was alive, she would have been intent on making Akhenaten work, on making her place their work. So I don't find it likely that they would have come back and spent this time investing in building a tomb just for Nefertiti. If they were going to do that, they they would have done it, I believe, for for Akhenaten. I especially don't believe, because it doesn't seem that that King Tut was the the son of Nefertiti, that he would have put that expense into building it for her. Again, if they if they would have taken them and reburied these individuals in another royal tomb, 
which was something that did happen throughout periods. We see that the mummies were taken from a tomb that might have possibly been looted. They were kind of collected, put in different caches. That could have happened, but I doubt that we would have had a specific tomb built just for Nefertiti and that that would have been kept that that tight and that that would have been something where they could have actually retained all of those artifacts because that really, I think, would have been at the expense of possibly some of the other rulers like, you know, Smenkare, who I personally think was not Nefertiti, or it could have been, you know, taken from Nefru Nefru Aten or Akhenaten himself. So I don't believe that that really it would be likely that this tomb would have been built for Nefertiti. Secondly, it is very likely that there are other instances of things in the Valley of the Kings where this tomb was found that we haven't found. Recently, they found uh, KV-63 or Kings Valley 63, which was, you know, labeled as a tomb, but it was really more of kind of an embalmer's cache. And, it, and it's very likely that for me that that's what some of these rooms might have been. They might have been, if there are any rooms, which it's it's not certain, but again, Reeves does point some good evidence to some good evidence. If there are some of these rooms, I think that it's likely that we're dealing with rooms that were either unfinished or sealed off, or possibly these type of embalmer's caches, which were really meant as places initially for those individuals kind of working in the Valley of the Queens and the King, or Valley of the Kings rather, places where they would have been able to store their equipment, not have to take it back and forth kind of on the arduous trek to and from the valley. And that's something that we know from the workers who worked in the Valley of the Kings that they themselves would have huts where they would live on site when they were working for a few days rather than going back and forth to the village where they would live every day. So I don't think it's too likely, but it is a fascinating argument that Reeves is making. And the best thing about this, and something that's really kind of quite surprising for the the pace that academia moves at, which is really oftentimes quite glacial, is that we're going to have answers soon. He came out with this theory, and I believe about June. It was very big. A lot of people, you know, it got a lot of attention. And right away, the Egyptian government and the Ministry for Antiquity said, okay, we're going to look at the tomb. We've got some nice non-invasive radar we can do, so we're not going to destroy anything. And we're going to be able to do some tests to see if anything is behind there. So hopefully, like all of you, I'm really waited anxiously to see what they find. We should find out in, at this point, just a few weeks. And so hopefully we'll be able to have a better idea of if there is anything behind there. Now, if there is something behind there, then it's going to be a much longer, more protracted kind of archaeological venture to find out what's behind there. Because the last thing we want to do is to destroy anything. And just because there is a room behind there, we don't want to necessarily destroy the wall and the paintings that are on it just to get at what's behind there. So once we find out if there is anything behind there, it's no doubt going to be a much longer, larger and longer process if there is some sort of space behind these walls to get at what's behind there. They, they may do some small, you know, kind of cutting, trying to get in there with, you know, smaller cameras. We'll have to see what's what, what'll happen at that point. But it's no doubt a very interesting time for, for Egyptology and archaeology in general to kind of see what might be behind there. So that's it for now. Uh, no doubt in a later podcast, I'll have a, a much more extensive conversation about Akhenaten, about the intermediate period. But until next time, 
This is Eric. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe at iTunes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric's Egypt. And you can also visit my website, Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt.com. Thanks again.